You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Kings, chapter 12, verses 1 to 20. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned to Egypt, returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, who had stood before Solomon his father while he were yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men had had gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his words, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw the king, did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to assembly and made him king over all Israel. 
There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in the second week of our series looking at the kings. And last week, as Jeremiah mentioned, we heard about the origins of the Israelite monarchy, about Saul and David and Solomon. Uh, We saw that things started kind of uncertainly with Saul, an impressive man, the most good-looking man in all Israel, as we were told, Zoolander of the ancient world, uh, who started out well but then was very insecure and was so desperate to keep his crown that he lost it. And then we saw God give the throne to David, his successor, and give him an extraordinary promise to plant Israel and to give it peace, to make Uh, and to give David a dynasty, a house for himself, and to raise up one of his offspring and to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was the promise of 2 Samuel 7. And as we looked at the reign of his son Solomon, we started thinking, wow, this looks like God's promise is already being fulfilled. Solomon sought God's wisdom and found it. Uh, He was able to build the temple, God's house, where God would make a home for himself forever. And he was able to build a magnificent palace. The people enjoyed incredible wealth and comfort. We saw that uh, their silver was nothing. It was worth nothing. They had so much gold. Everything was amazing and bountiful. They ate and drank and were happy, we read. And through Solomon, they became a blessing to all the nations. So people were flocking to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But then things began to unravel. Solomon was wise but became foolish. Wealth and fame led him astray. He took wives for himself from the nation, 700 wives, we're told. And we read that these wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. And so his reign ends in disappointment. We think, wow, what could have been? He could have had so much. He could have done so much more And so we wonder about what could have been and what is to happen next. And today we find out. We find out when Solomon's son Rehoboam takes to the throne. We meet him in verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. All Israel here seems to be describing uh, the various tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes and they were allotted different portions of the promised land. Uh, Judah which was the tribe where David came from and Solomon came from. They were based around Jerusalem. They had the temple, they had the palace, and they're down in the south of the country. And above them are the other tribes, and they become known as Israel, the rest of the tribes. And they come now and they ask Rehoboam to make some changes. You see, to do all of his great projects, Solomon had actually forced people, conscripted people into labour. 30,000 men, we're told, in shifts of 10,000 men a month. And this was very hard. And so they come to Rehoboam and they say, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten this hard, the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. So, so they're saying, we are willing to ratify you as the king, but please just make some changes. We really want to see this. Now, Rehoboam uh, needs to take some time to think through this, and so he consults his advisors. And he's got two groups of advisors, the old men and the young men. The old men suggest a diplomatic approach. Be a servant to these people. Speak good words to them when you answer them. Then they will be your servants forever. Just be gentle. Softly, softly is the approach. 
The young men, however, take a very different approach. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. That is really hard to say quickly. Uh, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. It's an extraordinary thing that they're advising. But this is the advice that Rehoboam chooses to go with. The people come the third day and were told that Rehoboam answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men. Unsurprisingly, it doesn't go well. The people are outraged and they refuse to accept him as their king. What portion do we have in David, they say. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. They're saying, you guys down there in the south, you're not listening to us, and so we're not willing to follow your king. Now, things quickly get even worse, probably trying to enforce his will. Rehoboam sends this bloke, Adoram, uh, out to kind of sort things out. But it turns out that Adoram had overseen the forced labour. And so when they see him, they think, wow, here's a chance to make a statement. And so they kill him to get rid of him. Fearing that he's next, Rehoboam retreats to his palace in Jerusalem. And so the kingdom is split in two. Judah down in the south with Rehoboam and the rest of the nation under a guy called Jeroboam. This is a big, big deal. Just last week, we saw this kingdom at its most glorious, the moment when Israel was at its most powerful, most prosperous, most impressive. Solomon had peace on all sides around him and Judah and Israel lived in safety, we read. But just one generation later, it's fallen apart. They're not at peace because they're getting ready to fight each other. To quote Anchorman, that escalated quickly. So how did this happen? How did it all go so wrong so quickly? And what does God want us to learn from this story? As I said last week, we don't just want to learn the stories, the histories of the kings. We want to learn from those histories. And so what do we learn here? Uh, Or to paraphrase the Bible commentator John Woodhouse, Rehoboam is an example of power in the wrong hands. Rehoboam is a fool who listens to foolish advice and behaves in a foolish manner. It's quite extraordinary that he chooses the advice of the young men over the old men. When I think of these old men, I think of those figures in TV shows, you know, like The Crown or a a political show where there's like around the king or the queen or the, the, the president, there's this older group of people, these older advisors who've been around, they're very experienced, they know what to do, they're diplomatic. That's how I think of these old men. And then I think of the young men, and it feels like these are just Rehoboam's drinking buddies. You know, like those those movies where you have, like, uh, the jock in high school or uni, and they've got the guys around them who are just yes men. (laughs) You know, they just want to exert power. That's what the young men are like. And Rehoboam listens to the young men over the old men. Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. There's a lesson here about how we speak. Rehoboam chooses anger, chooses 
authority, and it all goes wrong. There's also a lesson here about who we're listening to. He could have listened to the wisdom of those who are around him, the older, wiser people, but he chose the wisdom that suited him of his contemporaries. And so who are we listening to? More specifically, are there people in our lives who disagree with us? People who would uh, be willing to challenge us, to point out our foolishness, to confront our sin. And then when we hear that, how do we respond? Do we just become defensive? Do we assume that they just don't understand? Or do we listen? There's so much in the Bible about listening to good instruction and reproof. Proverbs 1, those who despise reproof shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. And that's what happens with Rehoboam. He follows this advice, everything falls apart, and then things get even worse further down the track. He ends up leading his people into idolatrous worship. If you were here during our Exodus series, you know that God gave very clear instructions for how he should be worshipped. He disregards those instructions. And then unsurprisingly, things turn bad. Shishak, the king of Egypt, comes up against uh, Jerusalem and overwhelms them and strips the temple of so much of the beautiful things that Solomon had made. All that gold that they boasted in is taken away. So it's worth thinking why Rehoboam was willing to listen to this bad advice, but, but also why was it attractive to him? And I think it's about he had a lust for power. You think about it, he'd grown up in a time of prosperity and power. Everything was good. His father, Solomon, had uh, incredible wealth and an enormous empire, really. And his son just kind of assumes that that's how things are going to be. He's entitled. He demands that for himself. And no doubt he watched his father and saw this mighty kingdom and wanted it for himself. He had the taste of power and daydreamed perhaps about what it would be like. And so when he comes to power, he's intoxicated by it. This is power in the wrong hands. This is like a, a bad president who has the launch codes for the nukes and he's kind of hovering over the button thinking, oh, what does this button do? That's what Rehoboam is like. He loves the power. But there's another reason why he did all of these things. And it might surprise us. He did it because it was God's plan. Did you notice that in verse 15? The king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Now, there's a bit of backstory here. It starts with Solomon. You might remember last week, uh, as the as he unraveled, God said to him, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you and I'll give it to your servant. That's what God said to Solomon. He did give him a stay of execution because for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I'll do it in the next generation. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. And so as a, as a reader, we can actually know what's going to happen almost before it happens. And it shows us that God is in control. That yes, Rehoboam has power, but God has even more power. Daniel 2, he is the God who removes kings and sets up kings. 
And that also means that this other guy, Jeroboam, is part of God's plans. He's got a fascinating backstory as well. In chapter 11, we meet him. Uh, We're told that he was very able. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So he was seen as someone capable and intelligent and gifted. And so Solomon himself gives him authority. But then he ends up actually turning on Solomon and ends up in exile. But then God comes to him and reveals to him that he has a plan for him. Chapter 11, verse 31, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give, it, give you ten tribes because they have forsaken me. They have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules. Now, there's actually some similarities here to something we heard about last week, about Saul and David. You might remember that God said to Saul, I'm going to tear this kingdom away from you. I'm going to give it to someone else who's more worthy. Now Jeroboam is hearing the same thing. I'm going to tear the kingdom from Solomon and I'm going to give it to you. And just as God gave David this mighty promise, he also gives Jeroboam an incredible promise. Chapter 11, verse 37, I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires. And if you listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. And so here, the God of all power is placing power into Jeroboam's hands. And we are left to ask, will Jeroboam be worthy of that power? God is giving him all of this opportunity. What will he do with it? It all hinges on Jeroboam's obedience. You see what God says here, if you will listen to all that I command you, I will be with you. It all hinges on what Jeroboam does with that power. Is this power in the right hands? Well, as we follow the story, we find out that no, it is not. This is power in the wrong hands again. Jeroboam starts well enough. He builds up some cities, but then things quickly turn bad. You see, he knows that Judah down south has the temple and that his people will be drawn to that, that they'll want to go down there and worship. And so he thinks to himself, I need to develop my own temple. And so he sets one up for himself. And then he brings out these gods, these idols for his people. And he says, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Again, if you were here during Exodus, you remember that's exactly what Aaron said in the wilderness. Instead of worshipping the true God, he's saying, why don't you worship these ones I've got for you? You don't have to go anywhere else. I'll provide all that you need. but this is a disaster. He's turning his people away from worshipping the true God. He's ruining their pure worship. And so God sends his judgment on him. You've cast me behind your back, therefore behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. God is pulling the rug out from under him. He'd given him this power, but he's shown that he's not worthy of that power. And so he's taking it back. And so it happens. Uh, Jeroboam reigns for some time and then his son succeeds him. 
but then he gets assassinated essentially and the whole house of Jeroboam is destroyed. But even though he is destroyed, his influence remains for evil. You see, tragically, Jeroboam set in motion a pattern of living and worship that uh, is bad for Israel. So repeatedly, we're going to see throughout the rest of the kings, if you read during the week, you'll find that all the kings of Israel continually do the wrong thing. And each time we're told they walked in the way of Jeroboam or he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. And so the way, the things that Jeroboam had done set up Israel for disaster. And ultimately, it leads to them being destroyed as a nation. Chapter 14, God says he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. This man has this crucial influence for bad. And what struck me as I was going through this is, is what a sad waste Jeroboam is. You see, when we read about him, I think we're being invited to see him as a, someone who's incredibly capable. The man Jeroboam was very able, we're told. He's very astute. He's smart. He's canny. Even the way he sees the need to set up his own worship centre, that's very astute. He, he understands what his people need and he's on the pulse. He's a very gifted leader. But he leads them into sin. And so with Jeroboam, we see the same thing as we saw with Rehoboam, power in the wrong hands. They're very, very different. Rehoboam is foolish, headstrong, immature. Jeroboam is smart and capable and canny, well thought out, but they both have the same impact. And so we see that sometimes power is wasted on the foolish or misused by the wise. This is power in the wrong hands. And this story is repeated again and again in the history of God's people. Continually they have these kings emerge and they keep thinking to themselves, is this the king that God promised us? But each time they're disappointed. Each time the kings prove that they are not worthy of the power that God has given them. And so God's people are left looking for the right king, the good king, the best king. They want to see power in the right hands. And in Jesus, they see that. By the time Jesus came, Israel was desperate for a king. They were strangled and suffocated by the Roman rule and yet they still had this promise that God would send a king, a Messiah, who would lift them up and free them, someone who would establish them forever. And so when they see Jesus, they get really excited because here is someone who has power, who can do miracles, who can feed the hungry, who can heal the sick. They see his power and they urge him to use that power, to exert it, to become the king they think that he is. There's a classic example when Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. We're told in John 6 that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world and they want to make him king there on the spot. But Jesus, we're told, withdraws. He kind of avoids it. He slips away. 
And he does this repeatedly, again and again, when he has the opportunity to exert that power for his own benefit, he chooses not to. Because he had come not to rule with great power and authority in that moment, but he had come actually to serve, to use his power to serve. And we see this most powerfully on the night Jesus is betrayed. And the Last Supper, we read about it in John 13. And Jesus, verse 4, he rises from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The washing of feet was an uncomfortable necessity in the ancient world. Uh, The people in a big city uh, like Jerusalem, the the roads were uncovered and so people walked around in sandals and uh, that meant that their feet are very smelly and dirty and so you'd have to wash them constantly wherever you went into someone's house. And so this was a very humble act. This was a humiliating act for someone to do. And so it was reserved generally for servants, for, for slaves And what's so extraordinary about this moment is that Jesus chooses to do it. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for a disciple to wash the feet of their master. You know, there's certain things that you're willing to do for a king, perhaps, that you wouldn't be willing to do for your little brother. But here, Jesus flips the script. Here is the master washing the feet of the disciples. And Peter gets really unsettled by this. Lord, do you wash my feet? Because this doesn't feel right. This is Queen Elizabeth coming over to your house and then cleaning the toilet. But it's even more than that. Peter, even though he doesn't entirely understand, he understands enough that this figure in front of him is the King of Kings, the God who created everything, who is doing this for him. Just think about this for a moment. This is our God. Here is the great God who made all things, the heavens and the earth, the universe, the God who's so glorious that the angels have to shield their faces before him. And here, that God, through Jesus, is on the floor washing the feet of people that he had made serving them. It's extraordinary. And of course, it points us to something else. See, when Peter protests, Jesus says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. You see, this moment, Jesus is actually pointing to something else. He's not just washing their feet. He's saying, I am here to wash your souls, to wash you from the dirt of the sin that is stuck to you. See, the Bible makes it clear that we are all sinners. God gave great power to all humanity. He made us in his image. He gave us dominion and power. But we have proven unworthy of that power. We've used that power for ourselves, for our selfish ends, And we've used that power against God, defying his rule in our lives. This is sin. This is power in the wrong hands. And when you recognise that, 
often you'll feel the dirt of that. You think of God as holy and pure, and I imagine God in like these luminous white clothes. And then when we think about standing before this God, we feel and see the stains on our hearts, on our lives. And we feel that when we come before him, when we think about approaching him. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out, cleanse my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Have you had that? Have you had those seasons where you feel that? Our souls are dirty and we need to be cleansed. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Zechariah 13, the prophet says that someone, it was a promise to Israel that someone from the house of David would come, one of David's descendants who would open a fountain for God's people to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And that's what Jesus came to fulfill. He came to serve us. That's what he was pointing to when he washed the feet of his disciples. The disciples couldn't conceive of a king washing their feet, but this king was going to do so much more even than that. He was going to take their sin and deal with that. And there's this extraordinary moment on the cross where all of the people who kind of hounded him and pursued him and taunted him. They see him up on the cross and they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. This is the, the, the one last time where they're saying, why don't you use your power? You think you're so great. Why don't you exert your power and be the king who saves himself? How tempting it must have been for Jesus to do that but he doesn't because, as he had explained in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die for our sins. He gave up his power so that he could deal with what we have done. This is power in the right hands. And so I want to ask, have you let him serve you like this? Have you let him cleanse you? When I was a kid, I went to a Christian school and we used to sing this song where the words were, brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. It's classic 80s Baptist chorus. And I remember always wondering what that line meant. Let me be your servant. Like, of course, I'm very happy with people being my servant. I like the idea of that. But as I grew older, I realised it's actually really hard to let people be your servant, to let people serve you. See, we always want to look impressive. It's horrible to admit to someone that you don't have enough money or your car's broken down and you don't know how to do something. You're not sure how to achieve something. You feel like you should be able to do all of these things or to just admit that you're you're feeling depressed or you're feeling incapable or nervous or anxious, any of those things. We don't like asking for help. We don't like asking other people to help to serve us. 
And it's the same with God. When we feel our sin, when we feel the dirt, we want to clean it up. We want to scrub and scrub and fix ourselves up. But that's not how it works. Jesus is not asking us to come to him clean. He's inviting us to come to him dirty so that he can clean us. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So are you willing to do that? Have you done that? That thing in your life that you're most ashamed of, are you willing to bring that to Jesus? Because he wants to take it. And then if you have done that, Jesus invites you, us, to serve others. See, after he'd washed the feet of the disciples, he says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus is inviting them to serve others. If anyone knows me, the thought of washing people's feet is repulsive and disgusting. Uh, <laughs> I have this real phobia of feet. But, <laughs> but what he's saying is, in that day, that was a, a, an act of deep humility. There's a way of saying, I am here to serve you. What does it look like for us? What does it look like for us to, to see, to know the power that God has placed in our hands and then to use that power to serve and care for others? It might be something practical. Maybe it's our, our money. Maybe there's people in, around us who are really struggling right now. We can help serve them, use what's within our power to serve them. Maybe it's something a little less tangible. Maybe it's our spiritual gifts or something like that. God has given them to us and now he invites us to use them well. 1 Corinthians says that we each have been given the manifestation of the Spirit, God's power within us, and then it says we have the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good so that we can serve others. Or maybe it's something just with our friends. Maybe there's someone in our lives who's really struggling in other ways and we can give them a listening ear. We can give them good advice. We can be there for them. We can be praying for them. Whatever it is, tonight, go home and ask God, what is within my power and how do I make sure that this is power in the right hands? And as we do that, as we use that power well, we actually point to the one who used that power best of all. Later on in his uh, conversation with his disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, when we use our power for good to serve, we point to Jesus, the one who had all power and gave it all up to serve us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for what we learned from Rehoboam and Jeroboam about the importance of who we listen to, 
and what we're drawn to. Lord, you have given us power, and we thank you for that, but may we not be overcome or intoxicated by those powers. May we instead follow the example of Jesus, who used his power to serve and care for others. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did. Thank you that you made yourself nothing so that we could be something, so that we could be your children, loved and accepted, holy and cleansed. We come to you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.